0: Jesus prayed, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're taking a, a little bit of an interesting route uh, that's not our normal practice to talk a little bit about who we are as the church. Um, and specifically, as Redeemer, um, in these coming weeks. Um, last week, I introduced this concept of everyday monks and what that means. We actually recorded it, and so there you can find that out there in Podcast Land. If you wanted an introdu- introduction to what we're what we're talking about, the the gist of it is that Anglicans are unique in that on the continent of Europe churches were planting monasteries, and there were people sort of going off to monasteries out of churches, but in England, the church, to a large extent, was uh, evangelized out of the monasteries, so monks, nuns, sort of thing, were doing the evangelizing, and it wasn't a, it just, as you might think about monks and nuns, as an isolated people but as a people who were sort of as Jesus has prayed here, um, set apart their distinct, the peculiar people for the sake of the world and and would actually go and set monasteries up and, as kind of as outpost of evangelization. They would set them up oftentimes on tidal islands, and they would have these rhythms of going and praying, self-examination, the root of this humility. But it was the architecture of um, the monasteries that first struck me. You remember last year, probably Advent, we had this square image of a monastery, and in the middle was the cloister. This was the place where we make empty space. It was a literal thing, something that was really there, surrounded by this activity But it also figuratively spoke to our need to make space for God. And there's often a fountain in the middle of it. We're symbolic of the refreshment that we find there. Now, and so when the church was planted in the British Isles, and this is where we've descended from, um, we took on this monastic flavor. Matter of fact, the rule of St. Benedict was uh, brought together in the Book of Common Prayer that you just prayed for. And the rules, uh, the hours of prayer, would go from like 7 to like morning and evening prayer. And so when we were being thought of and, and it, we took the tradition that was brought together and, and that arose out of the context even, and it looked like a people who were set apart as everyday monks. How, how do everyday people live their life in such a way that they're everyday monastics. They live by rhythms of prayer. <clears throat> the, the monastery is set up in such a way that you could go through the front door of the chapel, which might represent tradition, and then come down this wing where there's a, maybe a scriptorium and a library. There are the cells that the, the monks would live in that were for self-examination. They believe that life of stability committed to each other starts with self-examination, Because that's where humility comes from. And you can only live your life in devotion to a people if you first recognize your own imperfections. And and you would study. And so maybe we would see that as formation. Then you would turn the corner and you would see the, the place where you would eat. The refractory, the dining hall. You would see the garden where you would put your hands through the soil next to someone with you. And, and then you would go around and maybe there's the Zenodokia, the, the home or the house of hospitality, the place for the friendless traveler. This is where we got the, a hostel from. This is where we get our idea for food pantry from. And the unique way that Anglicanism was brought about is that it took this thing from the desert, this life of isolation, and brought it into the life of the city. And so it was, you're set apart, but you see yourself as set apart for this very particular reason. And as the rhythms we acknowledged last week with Jesus was it's very important to find ourselves experiencing contemplation. Places of rest, places of prayer and refreshment, places of self-examination. And then we go back into the world as a people of blessing. Blessing the streams, blessing the homes, blessing the the various aspects that people do everyday life. This is our heritage. But you might say, why do we need another image? Isn't isn't it just enough to be Christian? And it is just enough to be Christian. And the reason why we're doing this is because we believe this is unique instruments, practices, exercises that we've inherited specifically as Anglicans That lead us to the heart of God. The goal isn't the practices. The goal is not the exercises. The goal is not to do the liturgy perfectly. The goal is that these ways of life together becomes instruments that lead us to the very heart of God. This is the point. We are storied people. That's why we have an image of a monastery out in the hallway on the front of your bulletin. We are story people. We, we think in terms of images. And so we see this in Deuteronomy that we read today. When your son comes to you and asks you, why do we practice the law? That we are to respond, we. we so you're bringing your son into the story. And you say, we were once slaves of Pharaoh. And we are story people. And this is our story, the story that every week you come in here, you read the prayers, you rehearse the story, you kneel, you stand up, you come forward to be fed by Christ's own body and blood. Every week we are narrated into the story of God, taking postures, praying the prayers. It is a choreography that says it is not enough just to think the right way. But the prayers that we pray are embodied. We take them on ourselves. We kneel in humility, praying that God would make us humble. We pray words together that are bold, italicized. And sometimes that's hard, and sometimes it's awkward. But those words in themselves are a prayer. They're a prayer that God would bring our voices into harmony with each other and with his And in the special way the Psalms do this, because Jesus prayed prayed on the cross the words of Psalm 22. And so knowing that this was the prayer book of Jesus, we pray these prayers, the same prayers that Jesus took on his lips, and we together say, God, bring us into harmony with you, but God, bring us into harmony with Christ. In John 17, Jesus prays, that we would be set apart. Over and over again, in different ways, holy, consecrated, set apart. We are a peculiar people. Uh, Tradition really refers to a set of customs. It It is a particular language that we have. There is a language of the church. There are customs of the church. And Jesus prays over and over again that we would be set apart. From the world. But then he prays that we would be sent into the world. And not that we would be unique so that we would remain isolated, but we would remain a unique presence in the midst of the world that we find ourselves. Monastic life in England, the life in a monastery, it was so prevalent at one point that it became nicknamed benedictine land it was unique and so we took on this adapted monastery life as everyday Christians sit into the world who tell time by the hours of prayer who don't see prayer as unproductive or wasted time but see prayer as an essential rhythm of life this is the way we tell time but it It's not just like a way of determining your commitment level, who's in, who's out, but it is a way of establishing healthy rhythms, rhythms not as individuals, but rhythms that bring us together as a people. Remember, we are those who descend from this sort of English church. And it's a blend, however, it's unique. Because it is a blend that mashes together a Western way and an Eastern way. The Western way is ordered, this is the rule of life. And the Eastern way, the Celtic, they were the artists, (laughs) they were the ones who were sort of skipping through long green grass writing poetry. And you mash those together, and it's like Anglicans are born. And so when we come about and we're like, hey, we're going to pray twice a day. These are the hours of prayer. We don't just pray with words spoken. We say, let's sing them. Let's sing them because we want to offer a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving that's beautiful for the Lord, but also compelling for the world that hears them. We pray that God would make us a beautiful presence singing of his beauty in the midst of the world. Scripture gives careful attention to the tradition that we've received, Uh, which tradition means to to hand down and therefore then to receive. Jude is, is instructed to contend for the faith, contend to the faith that has been delivered to all the saints. And in Acts, you read of the first church getting together and saying, pray, they devoted themselves to the prayers. Paul tells Timothy, I'm convinced, he says, that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. And then he goes to young Timothy and says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in good faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. He says, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. I've heard warnings oftentimes against tradition. And they're warnings that are well-founded. And they're warnings that are even given in in Old Testament rituals. And these warnings usually uh, relate to uh, a, a way of praying that is disembodied. A way of practicing our faith in such a way that we sort of leave it at the door here. It is an individual way of life that doesn't see our lives as committed To Christ or to one another, but instead to accomplishing these particular laws. One particular sermon I heard, it was against the deception of tradition. The deception of tradition, he was condemning, was that you can fool yourself into thinking just by going through the motions that you're accomplishing all that needs to be accomplished. Or maybe that our adherence to tradition would keep us from moving forward to evangelize or to spread the good word among those who we live our lives. And these are fair warnings. However, what we see in scriptures is that tradition that is handed down to us from the apostles has, by the power of the Holy Spirit, been a chosen instrument of God that ensures that the gospel will be carried forward. It even ensures the preservation of it the creeds that we say each week for instance a way of preserving through the work and power of the holy spirit our identity as christians but i think we should always think also think about the dangers that come with avoiding tradition for instance the book of jude is a call really to preserve the faith to preserve the deposit it says and he's says, preserve it from sensuality. Preserve it from uh, changing the faith of, that was handed down to us from whims, from appetites, from our feelings. Sometimes you will feel one way. Some way you feel another way. There will be trends that come throughout the history of the church. But there's only one way to guard against these, being able to inform who we are apart from the deposit entrusted to us. I I think we should confess that we should not be left alone to our own devices. We were not meant to interpret Scripture alone. We're not meant to worship on our own. Heaven forbid we should make this up as we go. We are idolatrous people. And without the beautiful instructions that have been given to us. This faith that we've been invited to into through the faithfulness of our ancestors and the work of God in their own lives. We risk continually remaking God over and over again into our own image. We start with redefining worship, remaking it, appeasing our feelings, the desires of our flesh. And ultimately, we have a God that looks more like ourselves than like this transcendent Lord that we know. But let's, let, let's also acknowledge that tradition should not lead us to in-hospi- inhospitability. Is that a word? <laughs> but it should make us more hospitable. The podcast this week, Colby, Father Colby brought up a good example of this. In the desert, if a monk was committed to fasting and prayer, and someone stumbled along the monastery and asked for food, there to break fast. To stop praying. And to serve them. And to eat with them. You see, we're not saying that we shouldn't make worship Um, palatable for the world but instead that worship itself in particular the way that has been handed to us ultimately should make us missionaries it should make us compelling to the world this is the goal with this in mind the walls of the monastery are actually hospitable as opposed to simply being there to guard us from outsiders, they act as a way of inviting people into a new way. Literally walking inside the doors, through the doors, into this wall, was seen as a physical act of stepping into a new life. And Jesus' own invitation to follow him was always accompanied by a physical act. Come, follow me drop your nets, leave father and mother, pick up your cross, follow me. And we invite people into a new way of life, a physical step into this building, into the walls, as a spiritual way of expressing their desire to follow Jesus. However, it's also true that Jesus extended an invitation and his disciples, the same invitation to come and see. It, our, it is also unique to our heritage that you could invite people in and that they might even belong. To a degree, they could participate in the life of the church before they believed. Because life together in the midst of the monastery, life together is everyday monks, is a participation in the life of Christ. And we experience him not as an exercise of our minds, but as an exercise of our whole being, including our bodies. And we invite people into this to take the mark of Christ on themselves, to bear the cross, to come into life, to learn what it means to live a life of stability, A life committed to each other. A life committed to God. And a life committed to the place that this building sets. It's true that without walls, I think. Without doors. And without baptism. That we might maybe never enter into something. Without the means to step into something new. The narthex. The entrance to the church with the windows. In a monastery, you'd have the entrance to the chapel, the lay faithful, where they come in and they sing and they take postures. In the narthex, the people would stand on the porch and they would look in. You would look in stained glass windows, but you would see through transfigured eyes of peculiar, weird people. Living life that looks very different than the world that you live outside. And we would say, come in. But without this invitation, I think it's also true that we should ask ourselves, are we still on, symbolically, in the narthex? You'll notice there are no pews out there when you walked in. They're in here. Sometimes for various reasons, we remain out on the porch, though. Sometimes it's Because we have a critical eye. Or sometimes it's because we're hesitant, fearing that too much will be asked of us. But we are meant for life together. We are meant to be peculiar. A body of people who are marked by customs and even a language and postures that set us apart from the world the tradition of the church reminds us that we are being made a people. Not a people that we dream up, but the body of Christ, the people who Jesus prayed to, the people that he said that that we would be one as he himself is one. To be a sort of everyday monks, people who tell time differently, People who live life differently. People who journey together toward the heart of God. For his glory. For the glory that he has invited us into. And that those people outside the world, that we see through transfigured eyes, that they would come to know him invite you to protect the depo- deposit, to practice it, to live it. That your life, our lives together would be an invitation into the walls, into the life of Christ. Amen.